This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. On this edition of the Paltrowcast, I spoke with three musicians, each with a new release in stores, Danko Jones, Evan Conrad, and New Year's Day singer Ash Costello. First up is my chat with Evan Conrad, the newest signing of Lava Records. Conrad was signed by Jason Flom, the label head who also discovered and or signed Greta Van Fleet, Lord, Kid Rock, Matchbox 20, Twisted Sister, Skid Row, that's just a few of the artists right there. I spoke with Evan Conrad at this year's Sonic Temple Art and Music Festival in Columbus, Ohio. The Canadian artist's latest single is titled, Come on Snake, Let's Rattle. It's really touted the fact that you're signed to Republic and that you actually got a record deal the old school way of somebody at the record company heard your music and signed it rather than social media metrics. So how did you first get that reach out from Jason Flom? I was my manager, Amir, had his contacts, you know, just from knowing people over the years and a friend of his who also knew uh, Jason kind of just suggested like you should play this for Flom and only play it for Flom and he was like on the fence, I don't know, we're still figuring out a plan, we're not sure what to do yet, but then he was like, okay, whatever, let's just see what he thinks about it and uh, that was, I think, in October and then the following, uh, following Wednesday, I think this was on the weekend, the following Wednesday I was on a plane to New York and that was that. That doesn't get much faster, wow. It was really, really fast. And, and, you know, the fact that you're out there with just your name, Yeah. it reminds me of, you know, somebody like Jeff Buckley and that. He's out there, and it's not just a singer-songwriter, you know, you're produced, it's a full-layer thing. Was there any thought or pressure to adapt a band name like a Dashboard Confessional? Um, I had the pressure actually on myself. I didn't know whether I was willing to be that vulnerable with uh, with people by using my own name, but I felt that it was going to be the most honest and quickest way for people to get into what I'm doing uh, artistically, you know? Because I really want to want to expand a lot conceptually on what I'm doing in the music, so I figured going with my name it just felt right. Absolutely. Yeah. And when did you first start doing home recordings? Um, when I was about 15. I didn't know that that's what I was doing. I was kind of just trying to make stuff, but it just grew from there. And then, you know, it turned into me taking on production and engineering to the, the whole project. And Is it a garage band or what, what was the, the software that you started out on? Uh, I started in Reason. Then I moved into Ableton and Pro Tools, and that's kind of what I sit in now. I still use Reason for some creative stuff, but Ableton's mostly where I do like the building, uh, uh, if that makes any sense. Well, it does. Yeah. <laughs> Did you start off with piano lessons? Um, I, I started off, yeah, with keyboard lessons when I was about four. I say keyboard because there was no pianos, it was all just, you right. know. And uh, I w- actually wanted to play drums. But my parents said, we want you to learn this instrument first so you can understand the musicality of everything. Uh, so I got a snare drum and a keyboard 
when I was four years old, and that's what I started on. <laughs> now, now, when people say, I'm going to learn how to play the piano, mm. usually there's an album or an artist that inspires that. When they say, I'm going to pick up guitar, yeah. there's an artist. And then sometimes when they go, I'm going to play drums, there's a particular thing. Who is it that made you want to play drums? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know, man. Probably Neil Peart from really? Rush. Yeah, well, I grew up with Rush and, and the Eagles and things like that. Just really, like expert drummers and I was so impressed with just the look the feel of being behind the kit um, so that was probably where that started I just like to hit stuff too you know like that's a big part of it well I wouldn't <laughs> you know of course Canadian roots in your DNA is good you're going to like Rush yes. you're going to like the Tragically Hip oh yeah I love Tragically Hip They're of course but I don't hear your music go that guy listens to Rush right so who are the artists that's, that made you say I'm going to take up keyboard and I'm going to take up guitar um Probably the first time I heard OK Computer by Radiohead was a big one. Uh, the first time I heard Want One by Rufus Wainwright was a big one. Um, Jeff Buckley was huge for me too, like you mentioned before. Yeah. I mean, I go all over, man. Uh, Wilco, do you know Wilco? Of course. Love Wilco. Yankee uh, Hotel Foxtrot oh, exactly. and Summer Teeth. Summer Teeth. Those are my two favorites that you just okay. mentioned. Yeah. So <laughs> the albums that you just mentioned, and based on a tip of what your management told me, you're, I hear a liner notes guy that you know the names of the songwriters and the producers. Yeah, I, I'm a little nerdy that way. <laughs> so, so are you the kind of guy that you get to the town and when you have off time you go to the record store? Yeah, actually we went to, uh, we were in New York a couple days ago. I went to Rough Trade when we were out in Brooklyn and I checked out some, some stuff. I'm definitely a, a vinyl guy for sure. So would you say that a lot of your influence came from going to the record store and saying what's cool here or hearing the album that they're playing over the PA? Sometimes, absolutely, yeah. I just like, I like all of it, man. Like the smell of the store, holding the record, opening the record, like talking to the people at the store, look, seeing what other people are buying. Like it's, it's a culture and it's a beautiful one. So I love being a part of it. And is it all music all the time for you or do you have other passions or hobbies? Um, it's Right now it's all music all the time. I would love to get into film one day, either soundtracking or directing or writing, whatever. That kind of was alongside music for me as a teenager, but then music took over. So right now, that's my main focus. And <laughs> coming from Canada, that's not the most, you know, urban area. Mm -hmm. And then coming to things like this, you know, today, and yeah. then you're going to be in New York in a couple days, and then you're going to be in LA. Yeah. Is there a lot of culture shock for you? Um, a little, always. I mean, I kind of live out in the middle of nowhere uh, and work. I like to work in solitude, but. I've traveled a bit, you know, in my uh, in my 20s, and I've toured with other bands, like a bass player, keyboard player, guitar player in my past, so I kind of know the drill. It's just about getting warmed up again. I didn't realize you had that sideman past. Uh, who were some of the people that you were sideman for? Oh, um, the, the main act that I was playing for when I was in my mid-20s was called Dear Rouge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. know Dear Rouge. Oh, you yeah. know Dear Rouge? Awesome. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So... Do you find that a lot of other people that you were sideman alongside also went on to solo careers or that they're just still sidemen? Um, I think they're definitely still uh, sidemen, for sure. I mean, my buddy Stefan still plays with, with Deer Rouge and his brother, who also played with Deer Rouge, now plays with Lights uh, mm -hmm. in Canada. And, and uh, I, well, a lot of the guys that I used to play with, uh, I brought along with me on this tour. So, you know, trying to keep it tight, yeah. So ultimately, you know, being signed to an America-based 
record label. Does yeah. that have weird dynamics in being the Canadian artist that has to do that, or is that just a made-up narrative that people have? I think it's a bit made up. There's all that really, like, that I felt was just an immediate um, acceleration. That was about it, and it was just trying to, it's just trying to keep up now, you know? do the best I can yeah well for me that comes out of you know when I go to somewhere I, I was in Fredericton a okay. month ago yeah and when you talk about the all-time greatest bands and they go wait you don't know the Tea Party and right. I know them yeah. but they didn't really chart singles in America right their major label didn't have curry favor with the American part but in this case you are signed to the American label which puts you elsewhere yeah so have you already you know started meeting with the UK counterparts or is it more North American focused right it's, now it's North American focused at the moment, but we're gonna head out to Europe. I think next month to start that process right away. Yeah. And and then you know, knowing how long things take with big labels, have you already started writing your next major label album? <laughs> I've written a lot of stuff already, for sure. I have got a back catalog of music that um, I'm always working on. Since I self-produce and engineer and all that stuff, there's no rules on where or when I can do it for myself. So yeah, I'm always immersed in in creating more. It's the most exciting part to me. Cool. Yeah. So I guess in closing, any last words for the kids? Any last words for the kids? Uh, check out my uh, my new single, Come On Snake, Let's Rattle on Spotify or Apple Music or Tidal, wherever you get your stuff. And uh, we'll hopefully see you at a show really soon. Next up is my chat with Danko Jones, the namesake of a power trio that recently released its ninth album, A Rock Supreme. Danko Jones and band have been at it for over 20 years, with seven top 40 U.S. active rock singles, plenty of European and Canadian sales accolades, and over 14 million Spotify streams. Danko is the host of the Danko Jones podcast and a prolific columnist. Within our May 2019 telephone chat, Danko was very honest about all facets of his life and his career. My only regret was not previously knowing about his other podcast, which he revealed during his response to my last words for the kids question. So I'm a big fan of the podcast and that episode that you recently had with Damien and Nick, where you finally got back together, uh, you were talking about how you finally learned not to be competitive about your podcast or your music. I'm curious what inspired that you realizing that, you know, everybody can make a living and everybody can have a following. Well, it's not like I didn't think that before. Um, it's, it's only about podcasting and in that context, I said it, uh, because in the past when I was, you know, when we started our band, you know, some success by friends, I would see as competition and I wasn't able to appreciate their successes as much as I should have being a friend. And so, you know, Nick Flanagan and Damien Abraham are, are two friends who, who have podcasts and because I don't have any sort of, you know, stake in it, or, you know, monetary stake in podcasting or anything. I haven't monetized my podcast. I've done that purposely to be able to enjoy everyone's podcast because if I think I, if I started to kind of really jump into the game, I would start getting p competitive again. It's just my nature. So this allows me to actually just enjoy Damien's podcast, you know, and I listen to it when I'm on the road and truth be told, when I'm homesick. And I want to hear, you know, a friend from home talk in my ears. So um, I listen to Damien's podcast for that reason. Nick just started his podcast a few months ago. So, but I've listened to it when I'm on the road as well. So it has nothing to do with <laughs> thinking that 
people earning a living doing what they need to do or want to do is wrong in my eyes or I'm going to work against it. It is simply about podcasts, nothing to do with anything else. That makes a lot of sense. And an interesting thing about your podcast is that a lot of the guests are actually your friends. They are people that you've recorded with, but in a lot of cases, they're people that you clearly were influenced by and looked up to, you know, seeing that Duff was on there, who you've worked with and obviously were influenced by, and Damon Johnson knowing that Thin Lizzy was an inspiration. So it seems to me like you're actually friends with a lot of the people that inspired you to become a musician. Is that true? Um, well, I mean, Damon is someone who I've only recently become friends with in the last two years. Um, because we played with Black Star Riders, and that day we hung out and we got along very well. And then we kept in touch and and uh, ran into each other at NAM this past January. Um, Duff is someone who, yeah, we've we met him, Jesus, in '08 maybe '09, and um, we had mutual friends, and you know, I think they kept uh, uh, each uh, uh, each of us in touch with what the other was doing. So when we finally met up, you know, we kind of knew where the other was coming from. Um, but I don't think for the most part in general, I'm friends with, I'm friends with a few people who influenced me and who I looked up to and, and even had like <laughs> their band photos on my wall growing up as a kid. That is true, but not a lot. I mean, I have so many people that I, I influenced me and look up to in the music biz. I'm not a social butterfly <laughs> in the slightest. It's one of the reasons why I do a podcast is to actually try and be more social than I was when I started. And then I do the podcast with a lot of my friends because I don't really find myself to be a great interviewer. But if it's with a friend, you know, there's definitely a starting point and, you know, easy ground to, to tread on in terms of, you know, talking points. And uh, we, it usually ends up being something that, I th an interview that I think would go a little s more deeper or sideways than, you know, your, your standard run-of-the-mill interview interviewee. Well, seeing that you are able to tape some or a lot of the podcasts on the road, is that also in a way a cure for the downtime that you have of just waiting around on the road? Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's only that, really. Um, it's a way for me to occupy my time, busy myself, uh, rather than what I probably would end up doing is probably playing video games and or reading a book. I guess that would have been a little better too. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, it just keeps me occupied. Especially, I'm not one to like go out and and like I said, I'm not a social guy. I, I don't really do that kind of thing on the road. I stay in my hotel room. So. Um, podcasting helps me just stay there and be busy. And I really, really enjoy it because it's, again, what I do for a living is making something out of nothing, right? So doing a podcast is, is exactly the same thing. Well, that ties into, you know, the first song off a rock supreme is I'm in a band and most artists singing that mm -hmm. it would come across as being sarcastic, but somebody who's been following you for a long time knows that you're this very nice, humble guy that likes rock. So I'm curious, did sure. the creative Genesis of the song ever come across as sarcastic or really it is as pure as it sounds? Well, I think it's the reason why it's pure and, and no one's interpreted it as being sarcastic or ironic or whatever, what have you, or, is because the intent is is genuine. I mean, I don't have to sell it. 
uh, anymore. I think people kind of know where I'm coming from. We've been around for 23 years. That's enough time for us to have enough of an introduction. Let's just say that for people who have never heard of us before. 23 years is, is a long lead up time. So I think people know where I'm coming from. And now I, I, I you know what, that's that idea that you, you posed in the question it never even crossed my mind until now. Uh, only because it's what I do. It's, it's I'm not, I think it would be sarcastic if it's not what I did. You know, it's exactly what I do. I play in a band. I play guitar. I, you know, Someone else plugs in the microphone, but I, I, you know, I hit the stage. Every, every lyric in that song is is real. Especially the breakdown in the song is, you know, you might think I'm foolish, you might be right, or whatever I say, you might be I might be outrageous, uh, whatever. Those are genuine feelings I've had dealing with the square world, where they look at what I do and they just, you know, don't understand how it's done in 2019 and. You know, and, and if, if, if I am doing it, I must be some, you know, drug addict, you know, psychopath. I mean, yesterday we were on a plane flying home and some guy, you know, just a nice guy. He didn't mean any harm by it, but he goes, you guys look like you're in a band. And then Rich, our drummer, goes, why? Because we look like scumbags. What is it about us that, you know, what, we're not ready to play golf like you are? Um, so there is definitely... Um, you know, and us against the world kind of thing. And because of that, I can sing that song without any sarcasm. It's what I do. It might sound sarcastic to someone else. Maybe that guy in the square world, you know, who, 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 who isn't living in that, that's not part of his world, you know. But this is what I do for a living. I play rock shows and play rock music for a living. And that's really scarce in 2019. So I'm proud of it. And we put it in the song. Another interesting thing about you and your band is that in some countries, you, you know, you're playing arenas, other countries you are playing festivals, other countries you're playing clubs. So I'm curious if you have the same sort of general set list that you play, whether you're headlining or opening, or if it really does change from situation to situation. Well, I mean, you know, we've been playing some Canadian dates over the last month. And so we've had to throw in a song called Bounce which got a lot of radio play for about a year or a lot of video play because it's a song from the late nineties. So, um, you know, we've made the mistake in the past where, you know, we just play, you know, give or take a song or two or switch it up, but it's mainly the set list from, you know, our European tours. And so we just keep touring. So we just keep playing and we've made the mistake in the past where we don't, we don't include bounce in the set list when we come back to Canada to play a show because you know it's, bounce was never a like a hit or a or a video or a you know um, um, an added song on radio like it was in Canada and so you know people uh, you know we've gotten messages afterwards going you didn't play bounce you didn't and my knee jerk reaction is like well did you not hear the other twenty songs we played <laughs> I think they were pretty good too. But, you know, there is something to be said for, yeah, it's why you get radio plays. You reach a mass audience, and by doing that, you, you, you inevitably, you know, get people to come to your shows because they just want to hear that one song, which to me as a music fan, I, it baffles me, but that's what people do. I mean, I didn't, that's it's not what I do, so I don't know, but 
there's people who do that. They go to the show, pay their money, sit there through a whole set of music just to hear one song, which is really interesting. Right. Now, we've talked about the latest album a bit and the fact that you're always on the road and that you're podcasting as well. Is there is there more that you like to do with your time or really is it that music consumes so much time that when you don't have to tour and you don't have to record that you kind of like to be quiet and off the grid? Uh, I'm not off the grid. I, I've got like four Instagram accounts and I, I do tweet a lot, um, mainly mainly it's uh you know band stuff like we're, we've got shows coming up or doug ford or premieres as a corrupt scumbag that kind of stuff but um other than that uh yeah i don't i'm not playing my guitar for 10 hours a day in fact i don't play guitar at all unless it's to write something or to like rehearse something that i forgot um i'm, I'm not that guy and i'll come up with a melody line you know or lyrics when you know, the time comes or when it's called upon to, to do it for a recording or, or some, some reason, but I always want to kind of, yeah, make shit out of nothing. Right. So it's a, if, if it's not a podcast, it's, um, writing, like I've got, I still have two columns in magazines, although, you know, it's all dwindled away. Um, but I, I have still two columns in magazines that I got to meet deadlines. And so, you know, I'll do that. Um, and before the podcast really became a thing for me, I, I did have like five or six columns in magazines. And when I started doing a podcast, I just said, I don't have time for all this. So I, you know, quietly gave up a lot of the columns. But uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not one of those guys who's, who I need to cr uh, like create music all the time. I do like to create stuff, but not necessarily always music, you know? Yeah, that question came from listening to a recent interview with Neil Sean where he was saying how he plays guitar for three hours a day even when he's not on tour. And you find that musicians either steer away from that or they always are actually playing. Uh, so I guess you're more the person who just likes to create no matter what the media is. Yeah, I'm more like that. I like to step back and look at my creation if it's a song or if it's a... Uh, an article or if it's listen to a podcast or something I'm, I'm more about the creation rather than just one thing i mean neil sean is a like he's like a s spectacular guitar player um i mean uh, i mean i guess if you need to keep at the level that he achieved you you, you have to play three hours a day right uh so i guess in closing any last words for the kids uh our rock supreme is our new album it's our ninth studio album it was produced by Garth Richardson. We're very, very happy about it. Uh, I think it's our best album, even though that's what every band in the world says about their latest record. I stand by it. I stood by it the last time we put out a record with Wildcat. I still stand by that up to that point, but I think Iraq Supreme bested it. And, uh, yeah, so the podcast is, uh, you can listen to it on Spotify and iTunes and SoundCloud. It's called the official Danko Jones podcast, because I also have a second podcast called the Regal Beagle podcast, which is, um, a podcast about the, uh, sitcom three's company. And, um, yeah, that's about it. Last but not least is my chat with new year's day singer, Ash Costello. New Year's Day has been added since 2005, and its 2015 album was its first to chart high into the Billboard Top 200. 
Things are looking even higher for Ashley and New Year's Day, as three charting singles have already been released from the group's new album, Unbreakable. Ash has also found success as a designer, beyond her work with New Year's Day, which we briefly talked about during our May 2019 phone call. Hey, Darren, how you doing? Great, and yourself there today? <laughs> Actually doing really good. I've just been kind of taking it easy, enjoying the whole day at home. I heard that uh, you recently survived about a vocal rest. I'm still kind of in waves of that. So um, today I woke up and I was like, oh no, my voice. But actually, uh, now that I'm talking out loud, it feels better. It's a tough time to, you know, have to deal with this when you have a new record, you know, coming out that you have to support all around the world. But how long did you spend making this new record? That's such a hard question for me to answer because I'm always accumulating ideas as I move along, you know, I'm always getting little ideas that I'm jotting down or song subjects or song titles or album artwork ideas. So the process for me is kind of like this never ending cycle. But as far as like when they're like, look, it's time for you to make a record. We started about a year before it came out, which is very unusual for New Year's Day. Normally we'll just get 30 days in the studio and they're like, okay, whatever you write in that 30 days is what you get. So this was very, like, an unusual way of doing it for us, but I really liked it. And you actually put out, I believe, three singles before the album came out. Was the album done at the point that you'd put out the first single, which I believe was Skeletons? Yeah. I mean, little minor things were being done, but pretty much, yeah, it was done. Well, the band sound has definitely evolved. Originally, when I first heard your band, it was more of a punk pop thing, and you were able to tour with bands like Bowling for Soup. And then, of course, you eventually covered My Chemical Romance, and you had the song that the WWE used for a theme song. (laughs) Yeah. Was was there something that specifically inspired you to become a heavier band? I always wanted to be heavy, but I just didn't know how to find it within myself, you know? And I started writing music when I was so young for New Year's Day that I just needed to learn how to do it, you know? Some people are born with the gift of getting songs, like, right out of their heads really well at a young age and some people have to kind of like develop that over time so since I have no actual training in songwriting or vocals or (laughs) any sort of instrument it just took me a while I still think I'm learning I still think I'll always be developing and learning that skill well was New Year's Day your first band because I believe you formed it or at least you joined it in 2005 I had a couple bands you know I started playing in bands when I was 13 years old and so, you know, we have always had a couple bands, just New Year's Day was the one that kept going. You know, it wasn't really like a plan for it to become what it became. It just kind of did. Were those covers kind of bands or talent show kind of bands in school? Um, well, I mean, imagine how good your band could be when you're 18 years old, you know. <laughs> well, probably not great. Unless you're like Greta Van Fleet, who seemed to have skipped the genetic of like, you need to get older before you get good. But other than that, we were freaking terrible. Like, we were horrible. I think even when I started New Year's Day, we weren't very good. You know, I was still so young. I look, I look back at our first album, like, oh, so embarrassing. <laughs> That's understandable. And I'm curious at what it's point true. you went from being proud of your band, not only that, it being like a part-time hobby kind of thing to an actual career, was there a specific album or recording when that happened when you knew that it was a career? Yeah, our last album, Malevolence, I feel like I definitely felt a shift in my life. I felt really proud of the music. 
I was starting to really feel confident in who I was as an artist and what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it and what I wanted it to sound like. And um, we just got so busy after that record that even if I wanted to have a regular job, I wouldn't have been able to. And also, you know, I would say your fashion sense also became more toward the forefront uh, as a result <laughs> yeah. of that album. Also, also very embarrassing on the first couple of records as well. You, you look back to how you dressed like 10 years ago or seven years ago, five years ago. Maybe it's more of a girl thing, but I'm just so embarrassed of how I used to dress myself. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's like anything. You know, you hope to kind of develop who you are as a person as you get older. And I hope, like, not just for me, but for anybody that you can think of yourself saying, oh, this is the best I've ever looked. You're not thinking like, oh, man, I look so much better 10 years ago. Are you the kind of person that writes every day or all the time? Or do you have to write only when there's, you know, an album to do? Um, I write all the time. It's definitely more difficult now with how busy everything is. Um, but I'm always writing. I don't have a home studio, but I have so many friends who are producers and songwriters that I just kind of bounce from studio to studio. And these days you're still based in Anaheim where the band started? No, I actually had to move to North Hollywood for the making of this record because I was sitting in four hours worth of traffic every day to get to the studio to make the album. And so finally I was like, fuck it, let's just move. Is the whole band based in, in Hollywood and, you know, the L.A. Jason area now, or is it just you? No, just me. Just me. The boys are all Orange County. And does becoming an L.A. band change things in a sense? And I ask that because, of course, the industry is still largely based in L.A. and New York. Well, I don't think it affected the band, but it definitely made my stress level a lot, low, a lot lower. Because I was able to not sit in traffic and utilize that time instead as maybe spending four more hours in the studio as opposed to just sitting on the highway. So ultimately, how far ahead are things planned for you and the band? Because a lot of times, you know, you book a first leg of a tour, at the end of it, you announce a second leg and the third leg, and then other bands know mm -hmm. the next two years we're on the road, and then we'll try and do a record if we don't get asked to do more touring. We are booked until spring 2020 at this point which is really awesome, really nice feeling. And um, I've already started making the next album. So they're really, I don't really follow any type of schedule. Really? <laughs> I just kind of do my own thing. So when you say that you've already started making the next album, does that mean that you're writing, you know, 50 songs, paring it down to 10? Or is it just you write every day and you think that the next album might be in there? Um, I don't really put too much weight on it at this early in the game. I'm just kind of riding to see what I think is cool. You know, just experimenting, taking my time. I feel like it's better to start as soon as you can so you're not feeling pressure or rushed later on down the road. And um, I'm just feeling it out. There's really no, like, what's the word? Nothing that needs to get done. It's very free right now. Well, I think I read somewhere that you have a clothing line besides this. Do you have creative outlets besides music? I have too many creative outlets besides music. I think I need like four clones at this rate or like a like a alternate universe time machine or something. But yeah, I have a few clothing lines actually. Pardon my ignorance. Can you tell me more about that? <laughs> okay. I don't blame you because it's mostly oriented towards the female audience. So it's okay that you don't know about it. It's just um, a lot of red and black, a lot of what I think is cool, 
a lot of what clothes I wish I could wear that are on the market. I'm basically making clothes that I want to wear. And um, we basically hit a home run with a shoe a couple years ago. It was the equivalent of having like a number one single. The shoe was just out of control. Could not keep it in stock anywhere. It sold out a Hot Topic and every, every Hot Topic type store around the world. We're talking like Russia, New Zealand, UK, Europe. And um, it's crazy to think of like a shoe that way. So that's the only way I can describe it. It was like it was my number one single but in the clothing world. That is very interesting because that is definitely going to change your perspective as to what a hit is, of course. And, Mm -hmm. you know, having experienced that kind of thing, do you now go, well, I have to have another shoe (laughs) that charts well? You know, is there such a thing as being a one-hit wonder in the fashion world? There is totally such a thing as being a one-hit wonder in the fashion world. Absolutely. But, um, no, I kind of just, it gave me, instead of feeling like pressure to do it again, it just gave me a lot of confidence in myself. Like, the ideas will come to me when they're meant to, and I kind of just let the universe guide me. I don't try and push anything or rush anything. I, I know that the ideas are in there and that I've got a special way of thinking about things, and if I just let that run its course, they'll keep coming. So it sounds like you're, whether or not you're setting out to, that you're working all day, is there ever any off time or any hobbies that you have away from music and fashion? Um, no. No, just if I have any off time, I try to live a little bit of life. You know, I got to go to Disneyland with some of my friends the other day. I had it in like a year, and um, try to see my mom, just see family, see friends. Because I am a workaholic, I work a lot. I put a lot of pressure on myself to work very much. And are the other people in your band the same kind of way? Do they have pet projects that they do besides New Year's Day? No, bless their hearts, they are swamped with work. They have so much work. I like such a workload put on them from this band that I I don't know how they do it all. So I guess in closing, any last words for the kids? Um, no. I, you know what? I Everyone always asks at the end of an interview and the only thing I can ever think of to say is just thanks for being along for the ride. Let's see where it goes. Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, have a great Shabbos.